Uh, confession is good for the soul, so let's start this morning with a group confession. What do you say? And here's the, my question. How many of you have ever re-gifted a gift before and are willing to admit it? Okay, quite a few of you, quite a few. Now, now let me ask, why do we do that? Why do we re-gift things? I'm, I'm sure there's actually a, a variety of ways we could answer it. There's many ways we could answer that. But would, would, you not say, would you not say it's true that the primary reason why we re-gift something is because we don't really need it? Uh, right before our son Daniel was born, we were given a super nice baby carrier. You know, one of those baby Bjorn guys, like high-end, super nice. We were impressed. When we got the gift and when we opened up the box, a note fell out. However, the note wasn't written to us. The note was written to the person who gave us the gift. And at first we thought, well, this is kind of odd. But then it hit us. We were the recipients of a re-gift. But you know what? We already had a baby carrier and a good one at that. So you know what we did? <laughs> we re-gifted it. That's right. Please hear me. We re-gifted a gift that had already been re-gifted. How about that? But, but, and I say this to, our, to my shame. You, you know what makes re-gifting even worse? It's this. What makes re-gifting even worse is that re-gifting gives the appearance of generosity, yet it costs you nothing. Have you thought about that? Regifting gives the appearance of generosity, yet it costs you nothing. It, it's actually, it's somewhat deceptive, isn't it? Because true, genuine gifts are those that cost the giver, right? Be it the cost of time, resources, or money. Not so with a regift. A re-gift has the appearance of generosity, yet it costs you nothing. It's not, it's not a genuine gift. Faith, you know what one of the many things I love about you? There are many things I love about the people God has assembled here at Faith Community Church. There's many things I love about you, church. But do you know what one of the primary ones is? Faith, as your pastor, I know that you, you Faith Community Church, you have an earnest desire to worship Jesus Christ. One of the many things I love about this congregation is that you want to worship Jesus Christ. And not just at Christmas time, but at all times during the year. Now, if, if you're here this morning and a visitor, I, I don't know you. But I hope this is true of you. I hope it's true of you that you desire to worship Christ. But I do know, as the pastor of you who call Faith Community Church your home, I know that you genuinely want to worship 
the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the question I want us to consider this morning, and that is, what does that mean? What does that look like? To put it another way, how do you know, Christian, your worship of Jesus is genuine and not like a re-gift? How do you know you're not deceiving others and yourself about the nature of your worship of Christ. So this Christmas Eve, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. For you know what we find here in this passage, Matthew chapter 2? We find the first recorded worship of the incarnate Son of God, Jesus. And I want to suggest to you this morning that what we find in this narrative is instructive. It's instructive for us today. What I mean is, Christian, if you want to grow in your worship of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you want to worship Him today, this Christmas season, and every day hereafter, I would invite you to pay careful attention, careful attention to what we observe in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So follow along in your copy of God's Word as we read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. That's page 807 in that paperback Bible. And let's see how this passage answers that question What does it mean, what does it look like practically to worship Christ? We read this in Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Whenever you see that word, behold, it's wanting to grab our attention. Get to that in a second. The wise men from the east saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. This chapter begins with the, the Matthew saying, these wise men came, and before he mentions the wise men, he says, Behold. So, he wants us to focus in and pay careful attention to these wise men. Now, who are these guys? The short answer is, we don't really know. The text doesn't tell us, does it? I mean, notice, we're not given their names, nor are we given the exact location from which they came. Now, if you've grown up in church, or you've been around church folk for a while, you know that tradition presents a lot of different answers to the questions to from where these wise men came. But notice the Bible does not. All it simply says is they saw the star and they came from the east. And just, just as a study note, Faith, when the Bible, which is God's revealed word, when, 
when the Bible leaves out details we would like to know, since it is God's revealed word, that means whatever questions we have, it's not important to the message God has for us. Yet, far too many Christians obsess over questions the Bible chooses not to answer, all the while ignoring the clear message God has chosen to reveal. Especially this time of year. And I would lovingly encourage you, don't be one of them. <laughs> I'm sure you want to know, what did they look like? How tall were they? How old were they? Were... The Bible says, not important. And we should say, okay, God. That said, though, we do know a few details about these gentlemen from this passage. First, they were magi. In fact, you'll notice that they're called that in some other translations. And this is because magi is simply the transliteration of the actual Greek word into English. A New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, in his commentary on this text, he helps us out here. He says that the magi were, quote, loosely, that term loosely covered a wide variety of men that were interested in dreams, astrology, magic, books thought to contain mysterious references to the future and the like. So we could say these, these magi, at, on one level, we know that they were truth seekers. Now, pop quiz, how many were there? Well, what do, what do our Christmas carols suggest? How many? We three kings, right, of Orientar, right? Which is an inference from the number of gifts they gave. But the, does the text tell us how many? No. It simply refers to them in the plural. So we know that there are at least two. But that said, the statement that they came from the east does let us, something very, does let us know something very important. And that is, these gentlemen were non-Jews. They were Gentiles which we're going to see in a moment, is quite remarkable. And why did they come to Jerusalem? Look at verse 2. What, did they say? what does it say? Why did they came, come to Jerusalem? Notice they, they didn't come for a vacation or to honor King Herod. Notice carefully what they say. They say when they arrive in Jerusalem, they don't ask, where is he who was born to be king? Is that what they say? No, they ask, where is he who has been born king? They understood that Jesus was the long-awaited king of kings and lord of lords. And honestly, this is what Matthew's gospel has been driving at since chapter 1. When we take a step back to see where this narrative fits in the overall structure of the book of Matthew, beginning in Matthew chapter 1, from the genealogy to Gabriel's announcements to Joseph... Chapter 1 is screaming at us that Jesus is the long-awaited Davidic king, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And notice the Magi said they did not come to honor this king or just to show him respect, but to do what? They came to, what's the last phrase of chapter 2? To worship him. The Magi came to worship Jesus, and I'm going to suggest this is the main theme of these verses. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We get a window, we get a picture of the first recorded human worship of Christ. And if we want to do the same, and I know you do faith, 
Let us heed carefully and observe what they do. Now, they get to Jerusalem because they saw a what? A star. Now, there have been many attempts to explain the phenomenon of the star. Yet again, there's much we don't know. All we can say with certainty is that God employed a phenomenon in nature to prompt the Magi to look for Jesus. In fact, please note, the Bible shows no special interest in the star's nature, only in its significance. The star was going to lead them to who? Jesus. And furthermore, we do not know how or why the Magi made the link between the star and Jesus, but somehow they did. Now, let me ask you, if you were going to a country and you were going to look for a king, where's the first place you might want to look? Say it like you mean it. A palace, right? And notice that's exactly what the Magi did. They went to the palace in Jerusalem, the capital of Judea. Now let's see how the people in the capital respond both to their arrival and question. Look with me at verse 3. So these magi, they come in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, they came, uh, verse 2, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with them. Tell me, what was the response to their question? They were what? Who was troubled? Everyone. Jerusalem and Herod. Now, now, just, now just imagine this scene, okay? And again, this is why it's so helpful just to slow down and put ourselves in the narrative. At a minimum, there were how many magi? Two. However, there could have been many more. Yet even if there were just two magi, they would have not traveled alone. They would have had an entourage. And based on the gifts they give Jesus a little bit later, it was probably a large entourage. So you know what that means? It means these guys, just imagine, on camels, they would have definitely stood out as they entered Jerusalem. Think of the camels. Think of the additional travelers. It would have been quite a sight. Do you remember that scene from the Disney cartoon Aladdin? When Prince Ali enters the city? You know what I'm talking about? Prince Ali, make way. Okay. I don't think it was quite on that level, okay? But nonetheless, it got everyone's attention. And when King Herod saw this and he heard their question, he was troubled. And, and you know what? It's not hard to figure out why. You see, although Herod was king of, in Judea at that time, he was not the true king of the Jews. Herod was installed as king by Caesar Augustus. In fact, he was an Edomite descent and not a pure Jew in any true sense. Furthermore, history tells us that Herod will die a short time after this. And in the years right before his death, Historians tell us that he became more and more mentally unstable. For example, did you know that Herod executed one of his wives, three of his sons, and hundreds of their supporters? This is no doubt why Jerusalem was troubled when these guys come in with camels, 
making a scene. They come into the palace and they ask this mentally unstable, narcissistic king, where is the king of the Jews that we might worship him? Everyone in Jerusalem is on the edge of their seats expecting Herod to fly off the handle. But you know what? He doesn't. Look at how he responds. Look in verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And notice, even evil men know when they need advice. And where does Herod turn for the answers? The scribes and the chief priests. Several commentators have pointed out these would have been the top theologians and scholars of that time. These guys knew the Bible like the back of their hands. And there are two striking, two striking features about Herod's response. First, please note, the fact that Herod went to the scribes and the chief priests indicates that Herod and others knew that this was a potentiality. Notice, he did not ask if a king would be born. No, his response shows that he assumed it would eventually happen. Second, whereas the Magi ask, where is the king of the Jews? What does Herod ask? He asks where the, who was born? The Christ. You know what this means? Among other things, it demonstrated that Herod and the scribes understood that God's promised king was also the Messiah. Not two different people, but one. And notice the religious leaders immediately knew the answer to Herod's questions. Look at verses 5 and 6. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, he's quoting Micah 5.2 here, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So this would be a really simple question everyone should know. In what city was the king to be born? Bethlehem. Very good. You've been paying attention to all the songs. Now here is where things get really, really interesting in the narrative. Look at what we read next there in verses 7 and 8. So, so the wise men come. They ask, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Jerusalem and Herod are troubled, expecting him to fly off the handle, but does he? No. Instead, he goes to the people who knew the Bible the best. The people who had studied the scriptures their whole life. And he asks them, where is the Christ to be born? And they tell him, where? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Now notice what Herod does next. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and, worshiping, and worship him. 
And after listening to the king, they, the magi, went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So, Herod asks where the Christ is to be born. The scribes, the guys who know the Bible better than anyone, they tell him where? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. And then tell me, who goes to Bethlehem? Does Herod go? Do the scribes go? Who just goes? Doesn't that strike you as a little odd? Here you have people who know the Bible, know the scriptures. And when there comes opportunity to come and to see this long-awaited Christ, do they go? Do they? Faith, you know what this narrative is doing? I think if we slow down and we look carefully, you know what this narrative is doing? It's presenting a contrast. A contrast that will inform us on what it means to worship. And here's the contrast. It's the contrast between the scribes and the magi. More on that in a moment. Now notice, on the surface, Herod's request seems rather innocent. Oh, when you find him, tell Tell me so I can worship him. Yet we know as we read further that he has nefarious intentions. So only the Magi go. And notice what they do when they finally meet Jesus. Look at verses 10 and 11. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. There's a lot of joy in that verse, isn't there? They rejoiced. And why? Because they're about to see the King of kings and the Lord of lords the long-awaited Savior. Verse 11, And going into the what? House. They saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. Okay, so let's ask a couple questions. Where... Did the Magi find Jesus? Where was he residing? In a what? In a house. You know what this means? It means this did not happen the night Jesus was born. And the fact that Jesus is referred to as a child here suggests Jesus is not a baby at this point. And tell me, look at verse 11 again. What does the text say the Magi saw? It says they saw the child and Mary. And this order, please hear me, is not accidental. In fact, Matthew seems to insist on this, for he repeats these exact words, the child and his mother, the child and his mother, four more times in this chapter, verses 13, 14, 20, and 21. Don't miss this. One commentator I read this week made the insightful comment that this scene, the scene of, of everybody coming in and bowing down and seeing Jesus with Mary, this scene is a number one contender for the most printed scene on Christmas cards. 
Have you been getting Christmas cards already this year? You've been getting lots of Christmas cards, and this scene is Jesus and his mother is, is on many of them. Indeed, this scene has often been portrayed by great artists whose works have almost invariably been called Madonna and Child or Virgin and Child. But that's not how Matthew puts it, is it? And you know why? That's because if you see this scene properly, the child comes first in your vision. He is small and humanly speaking helpless, but the child takes center stage. And seeing, the, and seeing Jesus, what do the Magi do? They do precisely what they came to do, and that's worship him. Think about it. Grown men and the presence of a child, a toddler perhaps, fall down and worship him. And notice the text implies there is no hesitation, just an instantaneous display of worship. And notice, they did not worship him simply with posture and their words. What else did they do? Tell me, what else did they give him? Gifts. Gifts. Notice, they opened their treasures. Now, Christians over the centuries have speculated about the meaning and significance of these gifts. But again, I hate to burst your bubble, but the text doesn't tell us, does it? The Magi didn't say, here, this means this and this means this. It just says they opened their treasures and gave them to Jesus. Again, grown men coming down, bowing before him, and giving a child extraordinarily expensive gifts. Now notice how the story ends in verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Can you think of somebody else who was visited by the Lord in a dream in Matthew's gospel? In chapter 1? Joseph, yes. Amen and amen. This is God's good word. In our March of 2020, the San Francisco Gate newspaper ran this story. California mom crushed to learn plants she watered for two years is fake. <laughs> and the article begins with these words, quote, a California stay-at-home mom was devastated to learn that a succulent she had taken care of for two years is made out of plastic. Here's a picture of the plant. Kaylee Wilkes said in a Facebook post that she received the plant as a gift and worked hard to nurture and protect it, making sure it received enough water and plenty of sunshine. She even washed the spongy leaves, saying, quote, if anyone else tried to water my succulent, I would get so defensive. Well, after two years of carefully nurturing her plant, she picked, it out of the, the, she picked out the cutest vase to transplant her succulent. And it was in that moment she discovered it was plastic. Here's the picture. Right. Poor woman. She couldn't tell the difference between a real plant and a fake one, right? She was confused. Faith, I want to suggest 
that this true narrative that we just walked through, it was recorded so that we wouldn't do the same in regards to worship. That is, we would be able to tell the difference between real worship of Christ and fake. And he consider how Matthew 2, 1 through 12 is framed with this theme of worship. It begins with the Magi declaring their intention to find and worship Jesus, and it ends with them doing precisely that. In fact, I want to suggest that we could summarize the message of this text with this truth, and that is this. Biblical worship ascribes worth to Christ. This is precisely what we see the Magi doing. So, so back to our question we started with. What does it mean to worship Jesus? Friend, it means this. You ascribe worth to Jesus. You reorder your life so that he is preeminent. And here's the thing. We are always ascribing worth to something. And the Bible comes along, and rightly so, and it says if you want to worship Christ, replacement needs to happen. Whatever it is you are currently ascribing worth to, if you want to worship Christ, he has no rivals. And often the thing we ascribe the most worth to is who? Us. And here's why I was drawn to this passage for this Christmas season. I was drawn to this passage because here we learn, I want to suggest what it practically looks like to ascribe worth to Jesus. I believe we, we learn from the Magi how to do that. For when we take time to slow down and read this text carefully, this text highlights three actions we must take. And the first is this. And here's the thing. And this is why I love this church. I praise God for you. I know you want to worship Jesus. So let's learn. Let's have humble hearts and see what that means. And the first thing we learn, I believe, from this text is that you ascribe worth to Christ by pursuing him joyfully. You stop pursuing those other things you've been looking to to find your joy. And you begin pursuing Christ for your joy. I mean, look at how this is spelled out. Uh, look again at verses 1 through 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. You know, Christmas time is a time when many people travel. Amen? Well, it's been happening since day one. <laughs> Okay? The wise men travel from the east to pursue Christ. And then look down there in verse 10. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They're pursuing Christ with joy. Um, this past February, my wife Stephanie and I, we had the privilege of going to Israel. And one of the highlights, one of the many highlights we had there was going to see both Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And, and get a list. Do you know how far away Bethlehem is from Jerusalem? Do you know how far that, that distance is? Yeah, it's a little over four miles. A little over four. Did you know this? I didn't. 
When I would read Matthew chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, when, when Herod says, you know, you go, and when you find him, tell me so that I can come and worship him, I thought the journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem was another long trek. But it wasn't. I mean, as a point of reference, okay, how, how far is the distance between Bethlehem and Jerusalem? If you go out to 42, hang a right, and go to 265, that's a little over two miles. So if you go down to 265 and back, that's the distance between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. To drive it, 10 minutes. To walk it, maybe two to three hours. So it's not very far. Yet tell me, when it was revealed that Christ was to be born in Bethlehem, did the scribes go with the Magi to worship Jesus? But why? They had the scriptures. They knew the prophecies. Indeed, they claimed to be the closest to God, yet they didn't pursue Jesus. The Magi, on the other hand, were they Jews? What were they? Gentiles. They did not have the scriptures, yet they did everything in their power to find the child. And notice what verse 10 says, they did so with great joy. You see, faith, you know why, you know what this contrast between the Magi and the scribes illustrates? It illustrates this really important truth, and that is, biblical knowledge is not worship. Now, is biblical knowledge important? Yes. But when you study the Bible, the Bible tells us that knowing the Bible is not the same as the worship of Jesus. Pastor and author Sinclair Ferguson makes this convicting observation. He writes this. He says, Knowing parts of the Bible is one thing, responding to them is another. And then he goes on. He writes this. Herod and his counselors possessed what the wise men lacked, the scriptures that spoke about Christ. But they lacked what the wise men had, the desire to find him. Faith, please hear me. It is possible to know the Bible very, very, very well, yet like the scribes, not worship Christ. The, the contrast between the Magi and the scribes illustrates that these are two different things. Have you confused the two? Now, to be sure, biblical knowledge is necessary for worship. This passage illustrates that as well, does it not? Because notice the Magi needed special revelation. They needed Micah 5.2 to go to Bethlehem. Yet biblical knowledge in and of itself is not worship. Pursuing Jesus to honor him is. Faith, you know how you can ascribe worth to Jesus? Pursue him joyfully. Like the Magi, give effort to make Jesus supreme in your life. In fact, what would need to change for you to make an effort to purpose to 
pursue and honor Jesus. Look, I, as I was saying, this is very convicting, is it not? I grew up in a Christian home. I went to Bible college. I went to seminary. I don't want to be a scribe. And I know you don't either. I have known far too many Christians who know the Bible well, yet do not pursue Jesus. They pursue by the evidence of their life. They pursue the exaltation of themselves. They live for themselves, their wants, their wishes, far above living for Christ. All the while, and this is, this is what was the worst, all the while deceiving themselves into thinking they're true worshipers of, of Christ because they know a lot about the Bible. Yet there is little fruit of the Spirit in their lives. Instead, there's the fruit of, a, of joyless, grumbling, harsh, critical, self-centered actions, which simply reveals that what they're really worshiping and treasuring is themselves. They're you know, they're pursuing me and what I want, not Jesus and what he would have of them. Faith, again, I know you want to ascribe worth to Jesus. Then pursue Christ. Second, you ascribe worth to Christ by giving generously. Look at verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. With confidence, I can tell each of you right now what you ascribe the most worth to. And you know how I know that? All I have to do is look at your credit card statement. Faith, you want to know what you value the most? Look at where you spend your money. And, and here's where I want to press in faith. And again, I, I know you want to worship Jesus. I want to worship Jesus. Let's let this text point us in the right direction and instruct us. But in all sincerity and love, Christian, how can you say you ascribe your greatest worth to Jesus? How can you say you worship Jesus? How can you say I ascribe to him the most worth? But you spend way more on your hobbies, vacations, hotels, eating out than you do giving to the Lord. Faith, the Magi challenge us, don't they? And rightly so. For what does the text says? It says they gave of their treasures. And, and here's, you know what I find fascinating? They gave extraordinarily expensive gifts to a child, all the while having no idea how these gifts were going to be used. Think about that. 
Notice, they didn't first ask Jesus, okay, Jesus, tell me, how are you going to spend this gold? How are you going to use this myrrh? And then upon hearing a satisfying answer, okay, okay, now I'll give you my treasures. No, listen to me. And this is again capturing the heart of worship. They just knew Jesus was worthy to receive their wealth, so they gave it to him. What about you? According to your credit card statement or bank statement, what do you ascribe the most worth to? What do you spend the most money on? Does your credit card statement reveal the kind of generosity displayed by the Magi? If I could say this. Or does it reveal someone who likes to re-gift to Jesus? Faith, again, I know you want to worship Jesus. Here's the question. What changes need to take place in your life to make it happen? Listen, giving generously it's a discipleship issue. I know, I know many mature Christians who can afford expensive designer clothes but instead choose to wear off-brands and only purchase items on clearance. And you know why? So they can be like the Magi. They earn plenty to eat out at nice restaurants, drive expensive cars, and vacation at nice resorts, and wear expensive watches. All these things, they can afford no problem. Yet they live more modestly so they can give more generously as an act of worship. And I wonder, and this is the question I've been asking myself, I wonder if the biggest hindrance that keeps some Christians, myself included, from following the Magi's example is they esteem, is that we esteem a certain lifestyle above Christ. Here we have the first recorded worship of human beings of the incarnate Son of God. And they come to Jesus and they give generously of their wealth. This is how you ascribe worth to Christ. Finally, you ascribe worth to Jesus by obeying immediately. Look at how the story ends. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now think of the risk. Who, who wants to upset Herod? Not me. A man who is known for killing those who oppose him. Yet just as Joseph was warned in a dream not to divorce Mary in Matthew 1, the Magi are warned in a dream not to return to Herod here in Matthew 2. And we don't have to guess who the author of these dreams are. It's the Lord himself. And notice they obeyed the warning. The Magi returns to their own country by a different route. And think about this. This other way was inevitably out of the way. I mean, I don't know about you, especially when we travel over, 
I want to get there the most direct, easy way, man. I do not want to take detours. I do not want to add hours to my trip. Do you? I like direct flights. Anyone else? (laughs) In the dream, they're like, I want you to make a couple connections. Make a couple of stops. Hit Phoenix, Denver, go up to Seattle, Indianapolis, and then come to Louisville. Right? Yet notice, their worship of the king would not permit them to go the way they had come. And you know what? This is the way it always is. Because faith, please hear me. When you worship the king, you ought to go home another way. Meaning you are changed. And how are you changed? You're changed in that you no longer live for yourself, but for Christ. You ascribe worth to Christ by obeying him, even if it seems costly, even if it seems inconvenient. You obey him, not your feelings. The, the gym I work out at, it has a lot of mirrors. I don't know if uh, those of you that go to a gym, I don't know if your gyms also have a lot of mirrors, right? And, I, and I've noticed something. You know what I've noticed? <laughs> I look way stronger in the mirror at the gym than the one at home. Anyone else experience this? I mean, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm leaving the gym, I'm like, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And then I go home and I look in the mirror, I'm like, what happened? Right? And it's, it's, hard, it's hard to know which mirror is correct. Right? Now, that might be true when it comes to our physical appearance, but faith, when it comes to our true spiritual condition, there's only one accurate mirror, and that is God's Word. So here's the question I have for you this morning. When you look into the mirror of Matthew chapter 2, what do you see? We could ask it this way. Are you a scribe or a magi? Again, I know many of you want to worship Jesus. The question is, now that you know what that means, what will you do? I mean, it's one thing to be uninformed. But we move into the category of self-deception when we clearly see from God's Word what it means to worship Jesus and choose not to do it. To close, let me say this. Friend, If God is convicting you right now, hear this good news. Jesus died to forgive scribes. Jesus died on the cross to forgive self-deceived people who know God's word yet fail to worship him. He died to forgive greedy people who choose to spend their treasures on themselves rather than God. Indeed, Jesus died to save disobedient lawbreakers like you and me. You see, friend, the good news of Christmas is that the boy the Magi visited, here's the good news. He fulfilled the mission his heavenly Father sent him to do. And the the mission his heavenly father sent him to do was not to wear a crown of gold, 
It was to wear a crown of thorns. Jesus willingly went to the cross to suffer and die so you and I wouldn't have to for our sins. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the full wrath of God. We are owed for being greedy, for being stingy, for exalting ourselves, for knowing the Bible and knowing better and choosing not to pursue Christ. Then three days later, he rose from the dead, proving himself to be the incarnate Son of God. And friend, salvation comes to those who own their sin and believe by faith that Jesus died for them. Is that true of you? Have you put your faith in Christ alone for your salvation? And Christian, have you confessed your sin to God? In the mirror of God's word, if you're seeing a lot of scribe in your heart, and oh, God plowed through my heart this week, as I hope he does yours, if, he, if he's revealing scribedness in you, confess it and receive his forgiveness. Faith, God the Father hasn't given us a re-gift. Amen? In Jesus, he has given us the indescribable gift. Let our lives now, now, from this day forward, demonstrate that we ascribe to him the greatest worth. Amen? Let's pray.